Every person who can vote should vote on Election Day. I'm Brian Lehrer. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast, bringing you the best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear smart conversations from shows like On the Media, The New Yorker Radio Hour, The Takeaway, and yes, The Brian Lehrer Show. Plus, great reporting from our WNYC newsroom. We'll give you the information you need so you can choose wisely on Election Day. Welcome to Politics Brief. We're now just 15 days away from the midterm elections, and we're asking you, how hard or easy has it been for you to cast your ballot? There were no lines. It was pretty empty in there. It seemed smoothly run. I went in and voted and headed on home. Fortunately, mine was the shorter line. The other line was wrapped around the block, and then again. I used to live in Oregon where we did vote by mail. It was super easy and fun to vote. Now that I've moved to Minnesota, I'm kind of anxious about what's going to happen when I go to vote because I've never had to stand in a line and go into a booth. The polling place was walking distance from my house. It was more work to purchase groceries. A lot of voters came in misinformed about the voting process and assumed that, quote, something must be rigged or wrong. I am disabled, which makes getting into the voting place sometimes a little bit difficult. By federal law, each polling place is supposed to be accessible, to which I say, horse hockey. My voting place has never been accessible. And voting doesn't just vary according to who you are and where you live. It can also differ based on the type of ballot you cast on Election Day. Our voting machine was a touchscreen machine. The ballot was a paper ballot that was then scanned. However, the scanner didn't work, so I had to drop the ballot in a bin for manual count. I've submitted absentee ballots because I'm a Navy wife. Massachusetts has paper ballots and are scanned, not touchscreen, which leaves a paper trail. My state is always easy where all voting is by mail. So with such a fragmented system, how can we keep our voting process secure and, most importantly, fair? This week, we'll take a look at how our election system works, where it's broken, and what we can do to fix it. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. There are more than 10,000 election jurisdictions in this country. That's right, I said 10,000. And within those jurisdictions are hundreds of thousands of polling places. And in a presidential election year, you'll need about a million poll workers to make sure things run smoothly. That's a huge amount of infrastructure to protect from the kinds of threats we've learned about after the 2016 election, like the potential for foreign interference and hacking and other gaps in the system like outdated machines and unequal access to polling places. David Becker is here to discuss this splintered system of ours, and he's the director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So a lot of what we're thinking about here and a lot of what we heard from our listeners is that we really don't all vote in the same way. Why do we have so many different types of voting in the United States? Well, that's right. There's uh, actually about 10,000 little elections that are held on each election day rather than one big one. And that really dates back to the founding of the republic where... Uh, in the Constitution and in our traditions, it is uh, it is typical that the states have control over elections. And within the states, the states often delegate that responsibility down to the county or sometimes even the municipal level. So we talked about this thing that I know people go, oh, gosh, infrastructure. But when we talk about election infrastructure, we're talking about a couple things, right? There are a list of names. Um, there are accounting systems, there are reporting systems. Can you help us understand these different categories? Sure. There are various administrative and technological processes that go into running elections, as you can imagine. And um, 
elections uses technology just like any other government or private sector area. And when we when we talk about elections infrastructure, we're talking about an entire ecosystem of technology that we need. I usually simplify it down to three basic areas. First, um, maintaining the voter lists themselves. In every state uh, other than North Dakota, voter lists are maintained. And um, those voter records need to be maintained in a database and be accessible not just to the state election authorities, but also to the local election authorities so that they can update that information. And then that information needs to be transferred, sometimes in an electronic poll book, which can look like a laptop, uh, that goes to the polling place to allow poll workers to check voters in on election day. So that's, that's the first main area of technology that's used in elections. The sec- second is um, uh, the, all the technology that comes around casting and counting the ballots. So about 80% of people in the United States can cast ballots on paper. Those paper ballots are often fed into um, large tabulators uh, that might look like large copy machines, for instance, that feed these documents in and read all of the ballot markings on them so that they can count them. Uh, some people still vote on touchscreen machines, uh, and there's technology inside of those that allows those ballots to be counted as well. So that's the second big area of technology. And then the last area of technology is once the polls close on Election Day, everyone pretty much expects election results to be delivered out immediately. And as a courtesy, uh, election administrators try to get those results out, unofficial though they may be, as quickly as they can to voters and to the media. And that system, that election night results system, is another area of technology that's used in the, in the entire elections process. I'm talking about election infrastructure with David Becker, and that's basically everything from how you register to how you cast your ballot to how it gets counted. David, we hear a lot about the, the voter rolls, and you talked about maintenance of those lists. Who is in charge of maintaining these lists? Because we're hearing a lot about people, including here in New York City, where some voters got letters saying that they were taken off lists or they weren't eligible to vote. How does that happen? Why is there so much confusion at that stage? Well, the state usually takes responsibility, although the counties play a very large role in that. And one of the real challenges is, um, and I've done research on this for for many, many years, is that Americans are highly mobile. They move between elections, and election officials don't get very good information on that. And I think most election officials would agree, we want all of the eligible people to vote and be on the list. But we also want to make sure that if someone has moved out of New York, for instance, or moved out of your state, that they can be easily removed from the list. And there are federal laws that govern that as well. So getting really good information on when someone has moved or when someone has died and making sure you get it right can be very, very challenging. And um, there are, as I said, federal laws that govern this. Um, And there is additionally a... um, a a tool that election officials can use in some states. New York doesn't, but 24 other states do. It's called the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC for short, and I led the effort to create that. And it allows election officials to get much better information, much higher quality information on when a voter might have moved out of their state or within their state or died since the last election. You know, I'm wondering also, um, David, why don't we have a system that, and I know we've heard about this, a lot of folks will talk about this, but why don't, isn't there a system where folks are automatically registered to vote when they turn 18? So there are, uh, what we lack in the United States and what many other countries have is a some kind of official registry of citizens. We don't have one magic list in the United States where all citizens are on there with up-to-date information at any given point in time. So um, often the best database in a state of who might be eligible to vote is the motor vehicles database. 
but that's incomplete. Sometimes it's not up to date, but it is the best one. And many states um, have been moving towards taking the information that citizens provide them at motor vehicles and automatically uh, transferring that information into the voter list. And um, that can be a very, very effective tool to not only get new voters onto the list, but even more importantly, keeping those that are already on the list with up-to-date information so election officials know how to contact them. Yeah, in 2017, just before leaving office, the, uh, the the former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Johnson had designated this election infrastructure as critical infrastructure. And I'm wondering, if this infrastructure is so critical, why does it seem to be broken in some areas? So I don't know that I'd say it's broken. I actually think that we're in better shape than we've ever been. Um, and how, and why and do you say that, David? Because I think then that's a competing narrative to often what we see in the news. Well, there are a lot of folks in the news who are portraying a narrative that things are more vulnerable than ever and that nobody's doing anything about it. And um, I can tell you, having worked on this issue for a long time, there's been more work done to secure the election infrastructure in the last two years than we've ever seen before. And the 2018 election will be more secure than any election we've ever held. Even though there are real threats from foreign adversaries, um, election officials are now sharing information better than ever before, not just between the states, but also down to the county level and all the way up to the federal government on potential threats. There are more tools in place to monitor potential interference uh, at ele- at, in election offices than ever before. Nearly, nearly 90%, actually over 90% of all voters live in jurisdictions that now have highly sophisticated sensors monitoring activity coming in and out of the system. Um, this was not where we were in 2016, and it reflects the tremendous improvements that have been made by election officials. It's not as sexy a story to talk about the hard work that election officials and DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, is doing to try to secure our systems, but it's the real story that voters should know that when they go to vote in November of 2018, that their votes are going to count, be counted as they cast them. Well, how do we know? I mean, I'm, I'm less interested in if it's a sexy story as opposed to if it's one that um, that's, that's true here, Like, it, because we are continuing to hear this, and we're seeing like uh, long lines in Georgia, for example, this idea, you know, the, the, the letters that have been sent out to New York uh, voters. And those things, I think, tell us that or at least give the impression to Americans that their vote is, you know, may or may not be counted or they may run into some difficulties at the polls, particularly if we're talking about poor people and communities of color, David. So I'd make several points about that. First of all, the letters that go out uh, about voter list maintenance and about the uh, possibility that you might have moved are required under federal law. And the reason that they send those letters out is to tell people we might be removing you from the list. But even if you get a letter like that, you're not being removed from the list for another two federal election cycles. You go into an active status. And that means if you show up at the polls to vote, you will be given a regular ballot and your voter registration will be activated again so that you won't fall into an active status again. In the case of long lines in places like Georgia, we have to remember this is early voting. These are people who are opting to vote in an area where they've afforded them the opportunity to vote early, which is really good. More voters have the opportunity to vote early than ever before in the United States. And um, and so if the lines are long, come back another time. It's much better than fi- finding a long line in a place like New York where you can effectively only vote on Election Day. Most places allow for early voting now. How much is the the voter infrastructure, the election infrastructure really insulated from the politics of who's in office, right? Is it is it something that's at risk of being politicized? I think, I, and I ask that question because of what we're seeing right now playing out in Georgia with Kemp, for example, who's yeah, so both, there, you know, there are, got one foot in both of the uh, of the sides here. So there are um, there are instances where 
things are not working out as they should be, and Georgia could be one of those places. But um, I'd also point out it is not unusual for secretaries of state to be on the ballot when they're also running the election. That Nearly 20 states have that going on right now. Um, and in most of those states, there's no problem with it at all. The candidate can separate the campaign from the secretary of state running the election. And that can make a that can that's something we're seeing, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. So I think what we're seeing in places like Georgia might be, are, are, are outliers um, compared to what most voters are experiencing, which is the easiest process that they've ever had before. David Becker is the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.